Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio Show. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss, and that came to me through my mother's 30-year journey with dementia. For those of you that are new to our show, I just want to give you a brief introduction to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal here is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Rick Phelps is our channel expert who actually is living with the disease. Rick was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's in June of 2010, and he's the founder of Memory People on Facebook. I'm never quite sure if Rick's going to be able to join us with our schedule, so if he is, um, if he pops in, we will definitely pull him into the show. If you have not checked out Memory People on Facebook, I highly encourage you to do that. It's a great social support group um, for both people with early onset, their caregivers, and business professionals in the industry. On our homepage, I also want, uh, want you to be able to find our links to contact both Rick and I. We're both open to communicating with you. And if you like the program today, I hope you decide to become an advocate on steroids uh, for the disease and help us raise awareness of our show by liking us and sharing our link with others. If you have any questions while we're live on the air, you can either use the chat box and um, send me a message, comment, or question, or you can always call in live at 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And then just push one and you'll get into the chat or you'll get into my cue box so that I'll know that you're there and we can uh, pull you into the show. Today's show I'm quite excited about. We have a fantastic author with us and his name is Michael Krauthammer. Michael um, is an accomplished musician who learned at an early age the positive influence of music. He witnessed people um, through nonverbal um, communication, singing the songs that were familiar and then clapping the songs um, that they weren't. He learned that you could use music as a tool to elicit strong emotions and to calm and give comfort to those who needed it. Michael graduated from Indiana University with a BA uh, with an emphasis in human behavioral science and a minor in social psychology. From his first experience with Alzheimer's disease, he learned that through observation, nonverbal, and verbal communication, he could effectively communicate with people who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and considered to be non-communicative um, just by observing their actions and um, locating their reality. Once this was accomplished, he used two simple techniques to communicate and redirect what some people call behaviors, meaning negative behaviors. Although these techniques were not successful all the time, the majority of the times they were. And with every success, Michael was rewarded. Now he'd like to share these simple techniques so you can have the same positive results 
and see the communication is possible with your loved ones. Michael wrote the book, Walking in Their Shoes. So welcome, Michael. I'm so glad to have you be part of the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Lori, and I really want to thank you for inviting me to be a guest on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, and I look forward to sharing my positive experiences. Well, great. We are, we're just thrilled to have you. I have talked with Michael a few times on the phone. This guy is like an encyclopedia, just full of practical information and knowledge that I know can be life-changing for you if you just sit down and listen. And so with that, um, Michael, can you give our audience a little idea? Have you ever personally had a family member or um, a friend uh, who's had dementia at all? Or has it all been business-related more so for you? Well, unfortunately, when I was a small child, um, I don't know, probably around 14 or 16, my aunt developed Alzheimer's disease at a very early age. And it was a very fast-acting Alzheimer's disease. And at that time, they didn't have a lot of research about Alzheimer's. This is probably back in the 80s. Um, and so they really didn't know what to do. And I remember one day my uncle came home, and she had seen herself in a mirror, and she she thought another person was in the room. And he had just gotten home from work, and, and he looked through the house. He couldn't find anybody. And he said, no, there, there's not anybody else here. And later on that evening, she saw the person again, and she was actually seeing a reflection of herself in the mirror, but she did not recognize who she was. And you find in Alzheimer's that a lot of people lose that ability, and and in some communities, I don't like the word facility, I like the word community, uh, you will see that they don't have any mirrors hanging up just in case people are, are seeing people that aren't them, um, they're seeing other people. And I actually witnessed my uncle, although validation therapy wasn't around at that time, he took care of my aunt. He was a very compassionate man with her, and probably for around 14 years. And I visited once, and I witnessed his compassion and love and in the way that he treated her, not knowing that I would learn these techniques later in life. I mean, he did this just because of the kind of person he was. And I think a lot of people have that inside of them, and they just don't know how to use it exactly. So so I want to help explain um, some of the principles to make life better for the caregiver and also the patient. Okay, well, wonderful. That's always nice to know if if there was a personal uh, a personal connection there. Um, we're going to start out. Um, Michael has five different talking points that we're going to cover. All different uh, types of therapeutic things that you can use um, to communicate with someone. We're going to start out with therapeutic communication. And so first, Michael, can you tell us what exactly is therapeutic communication? Can you define that for us in just simple terms? Uh, Therapeutic communication is basically anything that improves the quality of life of a patient. And it can also maintain their dignity and respect. And actually, that's my mission in life, is to preserve the dignity and respect while at least maintaining or improving 
the quality of life for both the patient and also the caregiver. Okay. So anything Great. that increases anything that increases their psychosocial well being or makes them feel needed or makes them feel wanted, that would be therapeutic communication from my definition. Okay. Are there any, like, leaders in the field that, that helped you when you were looking at therapeutic um, communication that might be useful names, not that we're going to go down the path with them all today, but that might be helpful if someone wants to read another book other than just yours and, and really research this out? Are, are there any names that come to mind? Um, actually, there's several books that I have derived this from. There are so many different theories. And um, I, I, actually, with therapeutic communication, I've used several different theories and put them together. But to name a one book would be Communication Skills for the Healthcare Professional Concepts and Techniques. And that is written by Gwen Van Servalen. And uh, that's an Aspen publication. And... Also, Therapeutic Activity Intervention with the Elderly, that's an excellent book. And um, that's written by several authors, uh, Barbara Hawkins, and I think somebody by the last name of May. I don't remember all of the people that contributed to that book, but those are, are two really wonderful books. But now they deal more with concepts and techniques, and what I want to do is not necessarily focus on those because they can become very deep and I want people to to be able to understand how to use it instead of spending hours or weeks studying the techniques because actually I believe when when our conversation ends and the radio show's over if I've done my job they should be able to when they're done if they have a loved one at home or if they're in a healthcare facility or community uh, they should be able to use these techniques immediately. Okay. Well, so then my, let's my, jump in. Comes from, okay, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I was going to say let's go ahead and, and jump into learning more about um, the therapeutic communication as a whole. Um, can you give us maybe some examples or you kind of lead us down the path how you'd like to teach us on, on what therapeutic communication is? Well, I first I want to all the listeners to know that if they have any questions or concerns to please type or call in because I really want to make sure this information is understood. So I'll begin with that many times people do not believe they can communicate with Alzheimer's or dementia patients. And years ago they just didn't think they could at all. But the research shows that you can communicate with Alzheimer's and dementia patients. The form may change because the patient may have lost the ability to verbally communicate. So they communicate in a different nonverbal form or manner. And that's my emphasis is that you used the word behavior earlier. I have to use that word sometimes, but I do not like it because it means a negative behavior. I believe, and many theorists believe, that communication is a behavior is a communication. So with that said, I'll start out with the way they used to treat people years ago. They they used to try to redirect Alzheimer's patients. And so if if they thought they were living in 1970 
they would say, this is not 1970, this is 2011, and they would just try to keep reinforcing that. And then, now, this is around maybe 20 years ago. And then they realized that that just wasn't working because what they believed was their reality. So when you told somebody that it was 2011 and they were living in the past, you were creating a lot of problems for them, and they could be anywhere from confusion to loneliness to sadness or to agitation or insecurity. And those are things that we want to stay away from. We do not want to create that with people, especially who cannot verbally speak their concerns or their needs. So validation started around the 80s. And um, right now I'm going to focus on the therapeutic communication, but I just want to mention the validation, because it, it can redirect someone away from sadness, anger, loneliness, or hostility just by agreeing with them, with, with validating what they are saying instead of trying to bring them back into reality. That is never going to happen. They're at a stage now where they no longer live in reality and they no longer care about reality. They're in the past. And I keep reemphasizing this in my book that you really need to go into their reality. So, with that said, we have to understand that communication is both verbal and nonverbal, and I'm going to run over the components. Uh, the first, on verbal communication, there's two components. There's a verbal message, and that's what you say. And then there's speech. Now, speech has several components, which include tone of voice, vocal inflection, sequence, rhythm, and cadence of words. And those are all just really big words to say how you say it. So I'm going to say um, the same sentence two different ways, and um, we'll see what you think. So uh, okay. it's, it's morning time. So I'm going to say, good morning, it's time to wake up. Or I'm going to say, good morning, it's time to wake up. Now, if I am no longer understanding verbal communication, I am going to rely 100% on nonverbal communication. Now, which, which, if you're in the in bed waking up in the morning, would you prefer the first way I said it or the second way I said it? Oh, the first way was very nice and welcoming. You sounded like a happy person, and the second one, you sounded like you were going to be nurse 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 ratchet from the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, sometimes the staff uh, in a in a healthcare community is so overwhelmed, and they have to get everybody up. But they don't monitor how they say what they say, and they might not mean to sound like Nurse Ratchet. God forbid that they want to sound like Nurse Ratchet because I remember her. But um, <laughs> the whole point is, is that we need to monitor what we say, and how we say it. So if if I say I'm not angry, but I have my fist clenched and I speak in an angry manner, I'm sending a mixed signal. So that means that my verbal communication is one thing, but my mixed signal, which is my non pardon me, non-verbal communication, is sending another signal. And when you do that, the nonverbal communication is, with Alzheimer's patients, pretty much 95 to 100% believed. I mean, there's many researches uh, that 
that say from 70% to 90 to 95% people believe nonverbal communication, not only in regular life, but it becomes so much more important with an Alzheimer's patient who has moderate to severe Alzheimer's because they may not understand your words, but they really understand your tone of voice and your body language. And I think that that's a really good point that you bring up is that actually all of us pretty much lean towards the nonverbal in terms of what we really believe is going on. But if I'm in a situation where I want to deny the truth and you're telling me life is fine, though you're twisted like a like a pretzel, and, and your nonverbals are telling me you're not, but I don't want to deal with it, then I can say, well, you know, he told me it was fine. And I can use that in terms of a denial technique and go down that path. But I think everybody typically really not unconsciously reads those nonverbals. And that's where we get our gut feelings from so much of the time when we're hearing those, you know, mixed um, mixed messages. And when we, you know, when our brain is functioning um, properly, we can sort that out and say, okay, this is what I heard, this is what I saw, this is why I'm feeling torn at what's going on. But a person who has some form of dementia no longer typically has that skill to sort it out. And so they're going to typically refer back to whatever is the easiest format for them, which what I have found, and tell me um, if, if I'm mistaken on this, but typically ties into the emotional crux um, because, and that's kind of what drives those behaviors or reactions or whatever you want to talk, you know, whatever you want to say that they are. But um, they're steered, you know, I find they're steered more by emotional triggers. And so many times we don't even realize we are the emotional trigger because we are giving exactly. mixed messages. Exactly. And I do want to step back a little and say that this is not only with people with Alzheimer's. In the general community, non-verbal communication is believed more than verbal communication, and that's just the statistics. I mean, that's that's what research has shown. So when you have someone that doesn't understand the verbal communication, they're going to rely 100% on the nonverbal communication. And I agree with you, and I will touch base on that, because when someone has a behavior, which I do not like the name behavior, I think I said before, because mm -hmm. it means that they're having a negative behavior when really who caused that behavior or what caused that behavior. And my main, when I do consulting, the first thing I do is I go in and I observe. I observe everything. I observe any sounds, any loud sounds. Um, there's a lot of things that I observe because I want to know what's causing the behavior. I don't really believe that the Alzheimer patient is sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to be have, have a behavior today. That's not what happens. And I totally agree with you with the fact that a lot of the behaviors, the majority of the behaviors that I have witnessed have been caused by external stimulus, whether someone not monitoring the way they speak, or maybe rushing them down a hallway, holding their hand, pulling on them, 
or there's a lot of things that trigger that. So I totally agree with you on, on that point. Right. And if you like, I can move on to facial expression. <laughs> I have that, several no, points be... I'm going to touch. Oh, no, keep going, keep going, because this is all, I think, you know, we move so fast these days, we forget about the impact we have on one another. And, you know, this affects not only people, like you said, with dementia, but in our lives. I don't care if it's a, you know, a partner, if it's a child, if it's a bullying situation in school, um, or if it's a stranger across the street. We all hold a lot more power than we think we do. And um, once we get in tune to our nonverbals, it's pretty amazing because then you start seeing the reaction of others because you're conscious of it. And it's amazing the difference that you'll find. So please go on with the facial expressions. That'll, That'll be great. Okay, well, facial expressions are one of the most important nonverbal communicator. And the eyes communicate several kinds of information. They can communicate laughter, joy, grief, and pain. So I'm just explaining all of these things that are nonverbal now so people can understand that they really do communicate. Um, Even non-communication is communication. And so it's very important that they understand that everything about them is a communication. And I understand with caregivers, they get busy and they're trying to do this and they're trying to do that. And later we're going to speak about how you can involve some of the patients who are in moderate um, Alzheimer's or dementia in some of your activities and make them feel like they belong. But, but the, the next one was the facial expression. And after that, touch. Now, touch is one of the most sensitive means to communicate. I... Um, I give a lot of hugs. I give, uh, in, a, in a healthcare community, I give a lot of hugs. But I always first say, I hug you. Can I give you a hug? Now, I don't know if they understand my words, but I move slowly towards them with my arms open. I don't just rush up and, and you know, hug somebody, give them the big bear hug because I could scare them. But touch can be a very powerful form of communication because it does express what words can't express. And it's often synonymous with reassurance, understanding, and caring. Now, at the same time, with touch, you need to know the patient's level of acceptance if you want to use it in a therapeutic manner because there's some people that are social, there are some people that are non-social, and there are some people that are antisocial. And you want to make sure that you're not going to cause any kind of harm psychologically to them by touching them because some people just do not want you in their space. So, I mean, you, you have, everybody's different. The whole essence of what I'm going to be speaking about today is the diversity of the patient and how we need to pay attention to that. Oh, I so think with that's that, really, really true. Um, I'm, I'm going to just give an example here quick of, and I'm going to use it with my mom on, on touch because... This is something, I mean, I've had a very close relationship with my mom for, what, 50, almost 53 years now. And one of the things that surprised me in this journey with her in her later stages, if you touch her, let's say if you come up behind her and just put your hand on her shoulder um, or, you know, scare her, which you have no intent of doing, 
the first words out of my mouth, out of my mother's mouth every single time is, those damn men. And so, you know, we kind of wonder as a family if my mom may have been abused at one point because it's just such a strange comment and that she'd never shared it with with any of us. But that's always, no matter who touches her, um, if she is not aware of it, that's what's triggered from her. And so we also have to keep in mind that we don't necessarily know all of our histories uh, with the people that we're interacting with. And so it can be really, really um, a powerful thing and something that we have to be very conscious of. So I, I like how you're setting things up that people can see what's coming at them and you're asking permission and you're you know touching gently um, because all of that stuff can really scare them. Um, and part of it has to do with, I think, too, Michael, that as we age, our vision closes in on us, and so we don't see everything around us that we used to because our, our vision field gets much smaller. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're standing there and you think they can see you, but if their vision field has significantly shrunk to like a three-by-three-foot realm um, and you're coming at them from the side, that can really be a scary thing because they don't know where it came from. So um, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I just wanted to point that out as well. So great, great information. Very, very important um, to know. And you mentioned something that I have throughout I want to speak about is social history because that is of the utmost importance in working with the theories that I speak about. You have to know a social history. And if you don't, you have to guess. And I would say that she probably did at some point in her life, and I can only say this, but she probably did have a bad experience with somebody that did maybe touch her inappropriately or something happened, because I've seen that with the patients that I work with that I couldn't find, I couldn't figure out what, what they were trying to tell me or what was going on. But then when I did, which with the majority of them, you can't figure it out for some reason because you don't know. You don't know what happened to them when they were young. You don't know how they were treated. You know in this day and age, you could have people in a healthcare community that were in a concentration camp. You could have people that lived in the 50s and 60s when they were discriminated against. And it's really horrible when you start putting all of these these things together that they might have experienced and I worry about, I really worry about that. People that come here from other countries, they regress to a point where they may not have learned English. They go back to their original language. And there's a lot of, um, there's just so much information that needs to be provided so people can better understand, you know, how to treat the patient and, and really improve the quality that they have, but I always recommend that you you don't you don't go up from behind or the side, and 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 it's so important from the social history which you should have in the chart. Oh, are you still there? Yes. Oh, can you repeat it? I, we you just we lost you there for a second. I think. Well, I think the caregiver needs to realize that. 
they might be responding to something that happened to them years ago, and it has nothing to do with the current situation because they're no longer living in the current reality. So I just wanted to agree with you on what you said. So yeah, I can I, move I, on now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So we're actually we're going to go to the part where we were just talking about, which is spatial dimensions. Some people are very territorial, and they feel threatened when others invade their personal space. And um, intimate to touching is considered two feet. And also, there's very different theories on this, but they're usually around the same amount of feet, maybe one or two off. So a very intimate position to be with someone which might make them feel uncomfortable would be within two feet to them. And then personal, when you're speaking with someone, is usually two to four feet away, and social is four to 12 feet. And then in a public area, it's usually around 12 to 15 feet. But I always communicate at eye level because people that sit in wheelchairs all day or sit down all day, it's it's just... It's the only way you can communicate to them because they're, you're standing up and it's almost seen as, as superiority to have people standing over you all day long and you're looking at their stomach and you're not really seeing their face. So I always get eye level and it's and it's very important to understand going back to the social history, does the person hear well? If they don't, you really need to speak calmly in, in their ear or closer to their ear. So... From territoriality, we're going to move to posture, which is extremely important in nonverbal communication also. So if you're sitting with your limbs crossed, that sends a message of closure and avoidance. And and once again, there's all kinds of different theories, but I've put them all together. And slumped shoulders may signal depression, discouragement, or in some cases, pain. Once again... The Alzheimer's patient is communicating to you what's going on nonverbally. So we have to really pay attention to their nonverbal communication. And it's also important to evaluate your position before continuing communication. You may ask the person, are you comfortable or is this position painful? It's just, it's all about communication and nonverbal communication and what we observe and how we monitor ourselves to act. Some people are very easily distracted, so it's important that you have their attention. And if you can't get their attention in a larger room, it's it's really important that you take them to a quiet area or a room because anything that they hear, it might distract them. And you really want to make sure that your message is getting across to the patient. So some gestures and mannerisms that are useful to emphasize ideas, relieve stress, and create and hold a patient's attention um, are some, they're very important to use. And also, when you observe the patient, if they start finger tapping, that might mean that they're impatient or nervous. If they have shrugged shoulders, it might mean that they're discouraged or indifferent. Rubbing their nose could mean puzzlement, white knuckles, anger, fidgeting, nervousness. So it's always important that we observe the nonverbal communication. That's one of the major keys along with the, the psychosocial history. And we always have to look for congruency between the verbal and nonverbal. But we really 
are going to believe the nonverbal well over verbal communication, especially with an Alzheimer's patient. Okay, Michael, I'm just going to interrupt. Um, I have to ask if if you've switched locations while we're talking at all, because it just it, reception is quite as good. Okay, well then it, it is what it is. So, um, and I think people can still hear, but I always like to ask that just in case, or if something got on on speakerphone in the meantime. So, go ahead. We're we're fine. I just thought it, you know, it might pop back more clear a little bit later in the show too. So. Um, go ahead. You want to change location? Um, no, I I mean you can try if if you if you want, but I would say let's just keep talking and and going and you know technology these days you know sometimes it's wonderful and sometimes not so much. Well, <laughs> with the communication part, I would just like to state six ways not to communicate and. The first one is do not argue with the patient. I have never seen success of anybody arguing with any of the patients. And the second one is do not order the person around. You, that's just something that you don't do. Once again, we're trying to show them dignity and respect. Do not tell the person what they can or cannot do. You can always say, well, let's do this or let's do that, but you don't want to say, no, you can't do this because, once again, your tone of voice, it's just not going to be what, what the, the Alzheimer's person that wants to do something really wants to hear. You never want to talk to them condescending, and you never want to ask a lot of direct questions that rely on good memory, and never talk to people in front of them. Never talk about them in front of them. I'm sorry, the staff is getting really loud on this mm-hmm. end. So, um, yeah. Oh, it stopped now. Okay, good. I should have mentioned it earlier. You don't want to talk to about people in front of them. That you never know when they're coming in and out, and they might understand something that you're saying, and it's just really disrespectful. Uh, you know, it's rude to talk about somebody did this in front of them. That's just something that you don't do, whether they have Alzheimer's or whatever they have. So, I hope that you heard my other six ways not to communicate, and did. if you have any questions, please ask, and if not, I'm going to move on to validation therapy. Can Can you just highlight the six, just what they were really quickly, um, just in case someone didn't catch them? Just the, okay. The... Yeah, okay. The first one is do not argue. I have never seen anyone successfully win an argument with a person with Alzheimer's disease. I've never seen it happen, and I've worked now 12 years with Alzheimer's patients, and I've never seen anyone ever win an argument because they're going by nonverbal communication. And I've I've seen people yell across the room for somebody to sit down that doesn't remember that they can't walk. And once they start yelling at that person, then the then the patient starts yelling, I'm not, I don't have to sit down. And it just becomes okay, a big so argument. So let's well, let's just highlight let's just highlight them, Michael, so that we can get on to your other information. So so don't argue with them. And then what's what's another one? Do not order the person around. Okay. Do not tell the person what they can or cannot do. You do that in a different manner. You don't have you don't do that. Do not be condescending because they will pick up on that. And and I, I would go into. Um, a story about that where a patient picked up on a, a 
a staff member being condescending, and she just called him out on it. And the next one is do not ask a lot of direct questions that rely on a good memory. That just doesn't work. It frustrates the patient. Um, and also do not talk about them in front of them. Those are the six ways not to communicate. Okay, great. And that's that's communication. Okay. Okay. Okay, so we're going to move into validation. Now, mm-hmm. validation, um, it's derived from several psychological theories, including Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, Humanistic Psychology, Erickson's Life Task Theory, um, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, Joe's theory, and it's been thoroughly researched from the 1980s up until now. I just recently went on Naomi Files' uh, webpage to look at her research, and it's consistently been researched since the 80s up until this year, and they just have remarkable results. All the research shows that validation therapy does work. Now, she has 10 basic principles, and she has also four progressive stages. And I'm going to tell you the four progressive stages right now. The first one is malorientation, which is a patient expressing past conflicts in disguised forms. So they might be screaming out, they might be hitting, they might be moving furniture, they could be doing anything. It's because people are diverse. And... um it's very important that you not try to figure out what's going on now, but try to figure out what's going on in the past and try to resolve that because it just it doesn't work to, to figure out what, what did I do to make them have conflict because unless your nonverbal communication was poor, there shouldn't be conflict with the present. The second one is time confusion. That's when a patient no longer holds on to reality and they retreat inward. And the third one is repetitive motion, and that's when movements replace words and they're used to work through unresolved conflict. And the last one's vegetation, which the patient shuts out the world completely and gives up trying to resolve living. And I I mainly work with the first three, malorientation, time confusion, and repetitive motion. It's sad to see someone start retreating inward and because you don't want them to do that because once they do that, they go deeper and deeper and deeper inward. So I I sort of pick out people that I think might be starting into that stage and I really want to give them as much sensory stimulation as I can because I, I want to prolong as long as I can. I want them to stay in that stage. If I can do anything to prevent them from from going further inside themselves, I will. I mean that's that's just the way it is with me. I, I don't I want them to have the best quality of life. And and I need to really bring up because I brought up the principles of validation, but first I need to bring up if somebody has a change in a behavior or a mood, the first mm-hmm. thing that you need to do is have a medical exam because you need to rule out any medical problems because they can no longer say, I think I'm having a heart attack. I don't. I have mm-hmm. pain here. You, th- that's the most important aspect when somebody has a change in, in behavior or mood. You really need to have a medical exam. And then second, 
you need to check their medications because a lot of times people are prescribed psychotic meds um, and they're not really, they're designed to to control behaviors or to keep people under control. And actually, they're not psychotic. I apologize. They're anti-psychotic meds. And um, if they have these in their system, they might be having they might be having behaviors that they they are unaware of. I don't know how to describe it. People that are on too many antipsychotic meds will sit in a chair slumped over, and that is no quality of life, in my opinion. So, all of my talking today is is to help people learn how to resolve behaviors so they don't have to be put on psychotropic meds or antipsychotic meds to begin with. So if the medication checks out and there's no medical exam, then now we not we have to figure out what's what's causing the behavior, what what's causing this communication. I mean it's time to try to figure out. And the observation is most important. And there's a lot of questions I could say, but I'll just bring up a few. For instance, does the person have their communication at certain times or around certain people? Are they too hot? Are they too cold? I've seen many people disrobe simply because they can't say they're too hot. So they take their clothes off. And they don't realize, because they're no longer living in society, they don't realize that that's not acceptable in society. Uh, is something bothering them? Is a TV too loud? Radio? Some people consider radio and television noise. It bothers them. Are they hungry? Are they tired? Are they sleepy? Do they look sad, lonely? They're trying to communicate something with you. And as soon as you make that connection, see that you've made it a connection and, and you've received their communication, it's a very, very powerful experience. I mean, you know it happens. Yep, I have a question for you. All of what you're talking about is what people nowadays um, in the industry are terming an environmental checklist. And one of the things that I've been searching for is a good environmental checklist of all of the different things that people have to be conscious of. Like you said, room te- temperature, lighting, because shadows can cause problems, volume. Um, I, I mean, it's it's endless in terms Popping of... Gum. Popping gum, chewing gum. Uh, I've seen yeah. people try to feed people that could no longer feed themselves and they're popping gum in their face and then they wonder why they're not eating. And, and I always mm-hmm. observe everything. I observe the patient and I observe the staff and I observe the environment. I want to know what, because if you can't figure it out, and uh, then you're not going to be able to assist the patient. And so that's my my life goal is to figure out what's causing these behaviors so I can resolve them. But, but you're I right. I think that's key because what people have to do, and especially families I think run into this, is they think at times, especially in the beginning of the disease, that this person is doing this to bug me, you know, right. or right. to manipulate me or to, you know, whatever it might be. And it's like that's gone. You know, most of them can't. Exactly. Can't, Think they to have put no those things together. 
And so the right. filters are gone, and it really, truly is just getting down to what is their reaction to what's happening around them. And if we can embrace that, then we can, you know, kind of be the little CSI guys and figure it out, and boom, all of a sudden that reaction is gone, that behavior exactly. drove you crazy is gone, and everybody's happier. They're happier, right. you're happier, and it's it's usually pretty simple stuff if we just take exactly. the time to slow down to do that. Yeah, you're so, exactly right. So they're, they're really... Excuse me? In caregiving, you, you can tell you've learned a lot. I mean, you know these principles. I, it sounds like you've, you've used them. So it's, it's wonderful to hear you reiterate what I'm saying, and I know that you have the knowledge inside you. You're not just, you know, spitting back what I'm saying. It sounds like you've been through this. So Oh, um, yeah, it's, and it's amazing because one of the things that – as caregivers, both professional and family caregivers, is we're looking for control, but we're trying to control the wrong things. We're trying to control a person's reactions, and we can never, ever control how a person is going to react. But we can control the environment. We can control how we're going to react, which can trigger how they're going to react. So that's why all these things that Michael are talking about is is so important and once you set your mind at looking for the answers of just being really simple of what's causing that behavior not that that person is intentionally being that behavior because we tend to make them the behavior oh that's a bad person or this person always yells and screams or they you know they hit or they steal or they do whatever and we attach a label and we make them become the label instead of saying, what's at the root of it? Because they're really no different than me. I react to people too. Um, Sometimes I can stifle it and hide it, and other times I can't. My nonverbals are going to show, but we have to remember that their filters are gone. And so the social things that we do typically to hide things and be under control, those are out the window as someone progresses with the disease. And so what, you know, I'll give an example. of My mom had a roommate that had gas really bad. I mean, always and really bad. And my mom would never in a million years be rude to somebody, never. I mean, that just was not my mom's style. And this woman was in the bathroom, and my mom and I were walking past the bathroom in their room on our way out, and my mom just screamed out, what is wrong with that woman? She stinks up the whole room all the time. I can't stand it. And I, I just sat there and went, oh, my gosh, I can't even believe she's talking like this, this poor woman. But my mom's filters were gone, and she was reacting to an odor. And she just lost it, and she got very angry and very mad, and she was very verbally abusive, and that normally wouldn't have been her. And she wasn't doing it to be mean to the woman. It's just what triggered her, and she didn't like it, and so that's what came out. And so we really have to kind of detach when we're working with these behaviors and go, okay, What's the deal, and why can't they control this anymore, and then what do we need to do? And so we ended up 
getting my mom, you know, making a, 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 a shift in roommates because my mom was getting verbally abusive um, to the point that we thought she might even get physical with this woman because she was so upset due to the odor. And and then it was all fine. Then mom was back to normal, and the poor woman could, you know, do what she had to do. And well, it wasn't anybody's make, fault. Didn't that make you feel happy that you had enough insight to work and have her move to another room instead of putting her on a antipsychotic medication just so she wouldn't yell out? Yeah, and it's it's very simple. And... I think the other thing families have to realize is that, you know, it's okay to mention to a community, I don't care if it's a nursing home, an assisted living, you know, an independent, it's okay to make suggestions or ask for help of how to remedy because they don't want these behaviors happening either. They want everybody to be happy. And so sometimes it's bringing it to their attention because they haven't witnessed the trigger. And so as families and as business professionals, we have to share the triggers so that we can avoid them. Sometimes in in facilities and communities, they've figured it out, but they haven't shared it with the family. And then the family all of a sudden becomes the trigger and they're having all these um, incidents and they don't know why. And so we we have to stop taking it for granted, and talking about it openly so that we can have the best quality of life for those living with dementia and those involved with them. Because it it doesn't just affect one person. It affects everybody. Oh, it affects family. Um, And you should never be ashamed of, of... A loved one that does something. I, I've seen, I, you know, I used to say I've seen it all, but I know I haven't. I just know that I haven't. But I, I've seen people that were ministers that talked like sailors. And I, there's been a lot of experiences where the family was really upset because they said, you know, they never talked like that. But you don't know what stage they have regressed to inside themselves. They may have needed to speak like that. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that because I don't know if you ever need to speak that way, but you you just don't know what's causing that. And and it's great that you figured out that gas was causing that communication. See, I just don't like the word behavior because once you get classified with the behavior, if you're in a healthcare facility, they're not going to want to take you if from a hospital because you've got a behavior. Now, the healthcare facilities that I've worked in, I search out the behaviors because usually when I get them into the facility, the behavior's gone because they're treated the appropriate way. And and it's great because people that that were, they couldn't speak at all, they were nonverbal, sometimes I can get them to speak. It might just be in a nonsensical way, but they're still speaking. They're not retreating inward as fast as they were. So I, mm-hmm. I love some of your stories I'll have to pass the gas story on. So um, <laughs> I'd like to go on with the 10 principles of validation because they really they coincide with what you're speaking about and what I'm speaking about. And um, the first one is all people are unique and must be treated as individuals. So 
with that said, if everybody did that in the world, we would end war and all kinds of stuff. They wouldn't need, I mean, we wouldn't have to have jails or prisons or anything. But with this, you have to respect the patient's age, their beliefs, their culture, their values, and definitely their life experiences. So once again, you're going back to a social history. And if anybody is in a place where they're uh, thinking about putting someone into a healthcare facility or community, I, I recommend that they give them a very, very detailed social history of what their religion is. Are they social? Are they non-social? Are they antisocial? Because if you if you want someone to go to activities, you have to go back to their social history and see what did they used to enjoy or what did they enjoy before the onset. So that's the first principle, that, that you need to respect the patient's age, beliefs, culture, values, and life expectancies or experiences. And the second one is all people are valuable no matter how disoriented they are. Now, when people become disoriented, I truly believe that it's my turn or a family member's turn to maintain their dignity and respect if they no longer can do that. And in doing that, you preserve, you, you well, actually you preserve their dignity and respect and you maintain their quality of life. And that is of the utmost importance to me. I, I want them to all know that they are respected. And with with really old, old people, where I don't know if if they were a part of, you know, prejudice when they were younger or where they've come from. I, I always say Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so by their first name. I just want them to know that I respect them. And, and my staff, I want them to also respect them. So it's really important that to know that all people are valuable, even if they are disoriented. But at that point comes the time that we, we really need to look out after them and maintain their dignity and respect. I mean, it's it's just really important because that really keeps their quality of life at the same level, and hopefully I try to improve their quality of life. So step number three is there's a reason behind the behavior of a disoriented person. Okay, once again, behavior is communication, and unlocking that communication is the key to understanding and resolving the behavior. Once again, you don't know if that person has pain or hunger or they're angry because somebody spoke to them in a way that maybe they should have monitored and they didn't, or sadness. I mean, there's so many different things that, that can cause that communication, and it's really important when they lose the ability to verbally communicate that we step in and, and figure out what is causing that. Are they ill? Is there something wrong? Do they not like food? Are we trying to feed somebody something that they don't like and they can't verbally say, I hate spinach, so, so they're pushing the food away? I mean, there's so many aspects, and, you know, you have to keep going back to the social history. Okay, patients, number four, patients are not, when they have a behavior, they're not merely a function of anatomic changes in the brain, but they reflect a combination of physical, social, 
and psychological changes that take over place through the lifespan of the person. So you can't look. I think we sort of touched base on this before. You really need to look at a person's lifespan. We we had a resident once that we thought one of the behaviors classified as behaviors called uh, wondering. So they people that wonder walk endlessly and they have no destination and they they have no regard for safety and so you check on their their little box wondering well this I found out one of the residents from she had a very supportive family and I found out that she'd been in an accident many many years ago and from that day forward she walked everywhere. She walked to work. She walked to the grocery store because they told her she'd never walk again. And it's wonderful right. when you can receive this kind of information from from family members because that wasn't a behavior. I didn't consider that a behavior. She knew if I asked her where she was going, she would tell me. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. So I have a little battle there now with with the community or the facility because they want to classify that as a behavior and put her on a medication that I don't feel is appropriate because it goes back to her lifespan where she was told she would never walk again and she then from that day forward she never drove anywhere she walked. So um, it's it's just really important that we check out not only the environment and monitoring our own behavior but we we really need to make sure that we've got the whole picture when it comes mm-hmm. to trying to figure out where where that communication is coming from. Okay, I've learned this with my own parents, and they do not have dementia. They're in wonderful health. But you cannot force people to change their behaviors. And if you think about it in life, really you don't have much success with forcing anyone to change their behavior unless they want to. If they want to change the behavior or the communication, then that's great. But you can't force them. So if you stand over somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's and scream at them, stop screaming, they're going to keep screaming. And if you're screaming at them, sit down, they're just going to they're just going to keep engaging in your type of behavior. So that's something that's really important. You really can't change. I mean, my behavior is hard to change. So. Um, unless I really want to do something, I just that's something that with the general population I believe is true. Okay, the, the sixth the, the sixth point is Alzheimer's patients must be accepted non judgmentally. Okay, and, and that goes back to everyone is unique and they have to be treated as individuals. If someone disrobes or someone stands up and urinates in the middle of the dining room, you have to still respect them and resolve the situation and you have to accept them as a person that needs to be respected. I mean, you need to keep their dignity and respect at all times and I've seen a lot of people uh, that have stood up and I find this a lot with, with men that are in wheelchairs, they they go to stand up and they they're used to people telling sit down at them and they usually have alarms on it because they're in wheelchairs and they're not ambulatory and the way I I work with patients like that is I ask them where they're going. Now with men they're either going to go 
to the bathroom or they have a place to go and they'll tell you. I have mm-hmm. to go feed my hogs. I have to go do this. I have to go pick up my car. They have a reason to stand up. They might need to stretch their legs. They've been sitting all day. They don't remember because they're no longer living in present society that they can't walk. So they mm-hmm. have a reason. So I ask anyone today that has any kind of situation with somebody standing up to please just simply go over in a non-threatening tone and say, hey, where are you going? Because they're going to tell you where they're going if they can speak. And um, this this has just really been successful throughout every um, corporation that I've worked in. And when the staff catches on, it's even better because everybody has to be on the same page. Everybody has to yep. know because if one person just goes in and starts yelling, then you're going to start the the patient yelling back at him, and then it's going to be a behavior, and then it's going to end up with the PRN for the antipsychotic meds, and then somehow that can get changed into a regular basis. And and one thing I need to really make sure that people are aware of that you need to make sure. If you have a loved one in a healthcare facility or a friend, you really want to, especially if you see a change in them, you really want to go to the nurse and say, hey, what medications um, is so-and-so on? Because I've noticed that they're they're not acting right or they're, they're groggy or they're sleeping or they're acting out. And it's really important that you have that open dialogue with the medical staff. That's mm-hmm. That's super important. So number seven... Uh, number seven is going to take me to one of, of the theories, and it's actually Maslow's theory, and its particular life tasks are associated with each stage of life. Failure to complete a task at the appropriate age or stage of life may lead to psychological problems. And I've been throwing out this big word, psychosocial. Okay, I don't like to use big terms. I like mm-hmm. to just simplify everything because, and that's why my book is a short, easy read to book that illustrates how to resolve or redirect behaviors. It's not about all the theories. I have read and studied the theories, but I just want to get the information out to the people that don't have time to do all the research. So I'm going to just go through Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is a five stage model. And then this might help you understand where some of these problems come from. But actually, back to psychosocial. Psycho just means psychological problems. So are they, do they have depression? I mean, there's a lot of things that can contribute. And social, psychosocial just means the society part. Um, do, you know, do they attend activities? Are they happy happy doing things in society and and you mix them together and you get the psychological are they happy in their mind and then the social part are they happy you know doing the activities which should be providing joy to them mm-hmm. so anyhow we're going to go to Maslow's model and he starts out with it's, a, it's sort of a shape of a pyramid and the bottom part of it is basic life needs. They're biological and physiological needs, which are basically air, food, shelter, warmth, um, drink, sleep. Uh, it, it goes on, but it, it's the, the basic life needs. And his theory is, is if you need to get through 
these needs before you move up the pyramid, which are safety needs. And safety needs are, are protection, security, order, law, limits, stability, etc. They're safety needs. They they keep you safe. They keep you secure. And and actually, when we talk about later. We're going to talk about activities, and I really recommend a structured activity schedule, but we'll talk about that later. If you meet all your safety needs, then you have the need that needs to be fulfilled to belong and to be loved. So this comes from family, affection, relationships, work group. Anybody that's around the patient, um, you want to make sure they're provided that anyhow, but if they don't meet this need earlier in life, if the patient doesn't, then they might have some kind of psychological problem. If they don't meet any of these needs, they could have an underlying psychological problem. There's just two more. Um, if you meet the need to belong and to be loved, there's the need for self-esteem. And that's achievement and status in society and responsibility and reputation. And once you meet that need, if you meet it, you move on to the top, which is self-actualization, which is personal growth and fulfillment. And so it's really important to understand a communication. If somebody didn't have safety needs when they were growing up, or maybe they never had a family, um, or maybe when they were young they, they didn't have shelter or food, once again, we don't know what happened to that individual person that can no longer tell us verbally. So it's really important that we look at these other needs which are accumulated through life and hopefully they're they're resolved because if if we can't find the problem what's causing the communication then we need to look further. It might not be just something on the surface. It might be something that they've regressed back to. They might be living back when they were a teenager and things weren't going well. We never know this, but I do know that they do not have their communication or behavior because they want to upset anybody. That's that's the least of their concerns. They they really, they, I think they still really just want to fit in. So the next stage we're going to go is actually to number eight. When well, actually it's a principle. When more recent memory fails, older adults try to restore balance in their lives by retrieving earlier memories. When eyesight fails, they use the mind's eye to see. When hearing goes, they listen to sounds from the past. So this is the the patient who's retreating deeper and deeper within themselves. And this is at a point where if I see this with anyone, I want to use sensory stimulation, which we'll talk about in activities, to try to bring that person back. And there's a wonderful video, and I believe it's called Rosie Wilson and Naomi File, and it's on YouTube. And it's an amazing, amazing video that really touched me because I have been in that situation with patients, and I've actually had that experience. And it's such a powerful connection to make a connection with somebody who has retreated back where they just sit and they no longer try to be involved in society. And I really recommend that people, it's it's a very short video, it's called Rosie Wilson and Naomi File. So with that said, we have number nine, 
The ninth principle of validation is painful feelings that are expressed. So, see, we need to allow patients to express their feelings and that are acknowledged by a caregiver and then validated by a trusted listener will diminish. Painful feelings that are ignored or suppressed will gain strength. So it's very important that right at the beginning, if there's some kind of communication going on and you continue or if you don't understand or you can't figure it out, you want to continue to try to figure it out because it's just going to become worse because it's being ignored and they're trying to work through that and they don't know how to work through that. So sometimes they have what people call behaviors. The tenth principle is empathy builds trust, reduces anxiety, and restores dignity. And I think that when you see the YouTube video, you'll see how much trust um, is restored with Rosie. I mean, that was uh, that was a wonderful That's video. That's an amazing I, video. Absolutely an incredible video um, that everybody, that should be mandated that everybody has to watch that video. This is very powerful. I totally agree with you. And actually, I, I, I believe that Naomi Fah was a visionary and that her, actually in her six-hour dementia training course that I teach here in the state, they teach a chapter on validation, but they don't really go into it. But I really believe that everyone should be taught about validation therapy. And they're sort of taught about therapeutic communication. Whether they use it or not, I don't know. But they're sort of taught about that. But validation is what really is going to improve the quality of life and preserve the dignity and respect. So do you have any questions well, on uh, no, I, I was just going to mention with the whole validation, you know, Naomi's, I believe, from the U.S., but it, it, she could never really get it to fly over here and had to actually take it out of the country and bring it back to the U.S. Um, right. And it's nice to see it embraced now. Actually, I believe that she was born in Germany and they moved okay. to the U.S. and she lived in Ohio in I don't use this word anymore because it has a bad connotation to the elder population, but she lived in a nursing home where her father was an administrator, and I believe her mother worked there also. But oh, you're right. Using, right. But, you know, using the word nursing home, mm-hmm. years ago, we've really come a long way because years ago you could use physical restraints and chemical restraints. So... People my parents' age, not that my parents are that old, but they're a little older, they they remember going, if they had to go to a nursing home to visit someone or a community, as I like to say, they could have seen a whole group of people together. They They didn't have separate wards or whatever they called them back then. They had people that were mentally ill. They had people tied down. And so I like to get away from that word, but going back to... to Ms. File, I don't understand why it hasn't caught on because she, it's, this is thoroughly, it's been going on. I mean, they're trying to teach it and teach it. And I really do know why in the healthcare facilities, and we'll address that at the end of, of my discussion. But um, I, I, that's why I'm here. I, I want people, especially 
the caregivers that are loved ones, I want them to know how to communicate. I, I, that's so important that they can still communicate. But they can't communicate by going in and saying, hi, I'm your son. Do you remember me? I've seen so many people that were patients just saddened because a family member, and they didn't do it intentionally, but they didn't understand that, no, they, they might not have even been born, you know, in the stage that the person's living in. If they're living before the, the sun is born, they're not going to know the sun. But I do believe that patients know either by sense or by tone of voice. I, I really believe that they know someone significant is there because after the the company leaves, I also observe the patient later. And they might do something that some people – wouldn't be checking it out, but they might go to the walk to the door when they never do that, or they might start asking about someone that's in their family. Uh, but that just goes back to please do not argue. If, if they don't remember you, a good way, I always like to ask open-ended questions. You know, how are you doing today? Um, you might mention a relative and see if they pick up on that. But I never, I never would go in and say, I'm your son. You don't remember me? Because that that confuses them because then they start thinking, well, I should remember them. Why don't I remember them? You're my son? Wait a minute. I didn't think I had kids. So, okay. Naomi, yeah. I I truly believe that Naomi File is is a visionary, and I just wish that everybody would, would use her technique because I think life would be a lot easier on the caregiver and also on the patient. I agree. I agree. In fact, I'm going to put the link to this uh, this video with Gladys Wilson and Naomi um, on the site, and so I'm Thank just going to, I'm going to add that really quick because it's it's so so powerful. It's a couple minutes long, but it will change it'll it'll change your life in terms of interacting with someone. I had goosebumps when I saw it because. I can tell people all day long that these therapies work, but until you witness it and you have that feeling of connection, it is so amazing that the, that's all you want to do all day long is you want to make connections with people. I mean, it really, truly changes the life of the caregiver and definitely for the patient. I mean, it's just really, it's amazing. And I tweeted it yesterday. I think I tweeted it yesterday, but um, and I hope people are watch uh, watching it from my tweet. But my next discussion, if we're done with with the validation, yep. if you have any questions, mm-hmm. I wish people would call in with some questions or type in some questions because this is just really an important topic. Um, we're going to move to music now. I'm not going to say music therapy because I'm not a music therapist, but I use music as therapy, and just a little bit about my music. I started playing the accordion probably when I was eight or nine, and somehow I got connected with a group of doctors who went around to healthcare facilities, and probably around the age 10 to 12, I started volunteering with these doctors, and we would go in, and I would provide music, and and they would provide food and, and other other party 
party notions. But I was the musician, and at that point, the only reason I did it was to entertain and make people happy. I didn't know the impact that music could really provide until I started using music with Alzheimer's patients. And it quickly became evident that music could evoke strong emotions, whether happy or sad. And I don't know if you saw Gabby Gifford's special. Oh, yes. That was much recovery. I was sort of hesitant because I thought this is really going to be tough for me to watch. But when they, when she couldn't put words together to make a complete sentence, mm-hmm. when, they, when they got the guitarist in there, she could sing the sentence. And this is, mm-hmm. music's very, very powerful. So she couldn't say the sentence. She couldn't string the words together to properly make a sentence. But with the music, she could, she could sing the sentence. And that's just one way that music impacts people. Now, um, this is an exceptional way. Music's an exceptional way to make a connection in all stages of Alzheimer's. But for music to be effective, it has to be age-appropriate and stage-appropriate. Mm-hmm. So first, you need to consider the patient's age. I have I have um, been in charge of, of communities where they wanted to listen to MTV, and that just really doesn't work. I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, I'd listen to, to a lot of mellow music, but that's not what the patient listened to. So first you need to go by their age, but then you need to go to stage. So what stage are they in? Usually they've regressed back. So if I have someone that's maybe in their 70s and 80s, and I'm going to go back to maybe the 50s or 60s maybe. What I want to do is I want to find out when they – most people listen to music. Now, there's some people that don't, but a lot of people do. But I want to establish a timeline when maybe they were just getting out of high school or college age, and they were listening to a lot of songs back then. And um, the first thing, and this can be really easy to do, you can go to your local library and you can get the pop songs from the 60s, 50s, 40s, 70s. You can get all of those CDs. And I've, I've, just, I've seen so many amazing, um, I, I've just seen so many amazing things happen with music. I've, I went in one day to see if a woman that had retreated into herself and had no communication with the outside staff. She hadn't, She didn't communicate at all. She sat in a wheelchair and just sat. I went in one day with my accordion, and I, I knelt down by her, and I started playing and singing, and immediately she started rubbing my face. And I had really never had anybody do that before, but she's rubbing my cheeks, and she's rubbing my forehead and my neck, I'm playing and I'm trying to sing while she's rubbing my face. And then I think I was playing a little faster song and I stood up and she she tried to stand up with me. Now, mind you, there was a nurse on each side because they had never seen the woman even try to communicate with anybody. But mm-hmm. she she tried to stand up, so they helped assist her in standing up. And then 
she was trying to sing, and I don't remember if she had the right words or not, but she was actually trying to verbalize, and the staff was just blown away because this woman was having a great time connecting with me, and it was an awesome connection. And when I implement this in in a facility or a community, I want to show the employees how to do it, how easy it is to do it after you figure out what's going on. But at the same time, this woman is really connecting with me. And at, at the same time, a lady in a wheelchair, a very sweet lady sitting a little over behind me, was crying. She was weeping. So you never know what kind of emotions that you're going to evoke when you do it. But I've seen people, I, there was a man that never spoke, and he sang every lyric to one of the songs. It, it just blew me away. And I first I first found this out when I worked at actually my first facility, and I took my accordion in, and we, we got a lot of the residents together to sing hymns. And it was just really amazing to see people singing and clapping and having a great time. And one woman even said I'd left out a verse, which I didn't even know there was another verse. And just seeing them have a good time and relate, yeah, she called me out on that. I mean, she said there's another verse, and I thought, well... I don't know it, that I'll play it. But we have to go back to the social history. We we have to find out, did they listen to standards? Did they listen to country? Did they listen to spiritual, Broadway, classical? What did that person listen to in the past? And then after you find that out, I mean, I've used, I've used music in several different ways, but the most powerful reactions that I've ever had has always been with people with Alzheimer's disease, and um, once once again, when you make it when you make a connection like that with someone, and you know that you can do that every time you bring your accordion in, um, it, it's just it's a powerful feeling, and you don't have to worry about all of the things during the day because you know ahead of time that you can resolve. Now, I'm not saying people go out and buy accordions, but I'm going back to when somebody's standing up, if you know they're going to get their car, then maybe you can say your car's being worked on. Um, you know, I, there's it's whatever works for you. But but you don't want to say you don't have a car, you can't drive, because they apparently they think they can drive, and you're just going to upset them. So I just... I can't say enough about music. I prefer acoustic music, but I have seen it work. I, I in most facilities or communities, I at, at meal times I use music softly in the background from the era of the majority of the of the people that are in the dining room because I don't want all the institutional sounds, the banging of the the plates and getting the food out. I, I want them to have an enjoyable experience. And when I turn that music on, you can see they're listening to the music and they're, you know, they're moving around. And it's quite enjoyable to see them doing that. But at the same time, you need to be aware that what's music for some, other people consider it noise. So, you know, that's that's an individual, that's something that you have to figure out that I can't say, oh, yeah, everybody loves music because there are some people that do not music so um 
I have one more topic. Do you have any questions on music? Um, no, I just I want to add. I, I'm a firm believer in music. I have used it over and over. In fact, on my um, YouTube channel, Alzheimer's Speaks, I have lots of video clips of my mom in music. And so if you don't believe it, go to YouTube and put in Alzheimer's Speaks, and you'll see several different videos of a woman in her end stage coming alive and interacting and um, being joyful. And I can say as a daughter, when I'm having a down day, that's what I go watch, and it lifts my spirits. Um, you know, I went to a concert with friends just the other day. We went and saw the Canadian tenors that were absolutely fabulous. And, you know, I, I, I sat there and I listened to them sing, and a couple of times, I mean, I just had tears running down my face because they were just so powerful and evoked so much emotion. And I wasn't alone in this crowd. Um, and so, again, a person with dementia is not that different from you and I. Not at they all. They still react to many of the same things um, that we do, and we just have to focus on the joy, you know, clearing out the stuff that scares them, that causes them fear, that causes those behaviors that we don't like so that they can live a joyful life and so that we can appreciate and love and enjoy them as well. And so music can be so simple. Like Michael said, you don't necessarily have to hire a music therapist, though they are extremely powerful and it's amazing what they can do. But um, it can be uh, someone with a guitar or whatever or singing a song. I I sang to my mom the other day, and I don't sing because I have a bad voice. Um, and she just kind of giggled, and but we had a good time because it got it, it got a reaction out of her. You know, it was the tone, it was the rhythm, it was the words, and she couldn't sing anymore. But there was that connection. I was able to draw her out, and we had that special moment. And that's what I think this disease is really here to teach us: is how do we how do we capture those moments again? Because I think in you know, society being so fast-paced, we've really gotten waylaid of what's important. And so it might be buying, um, you know, a cheap little CD player or playing music on your iPhone. It doesn't make any difference. It's not about quality. It's right. about quality time together. And so don't don't look for this to be expensive or hard. Just try it. And if, you're, if your person didn't like music, maybe it's a guy who listened to a ball game regularly um, or exactly. CNN or, you know, or maybe they were into the stock market. You know, get recordings of those things that are familiar to them that gave them a sense of joy and peace. It's that exactly. simple. You're, yeah, you, you've got it down. You could have given this presentation. I had a gentleman that loved basketball. He loved basketball. And we took um, – he was at the beginning stages of Alzheimer's disease, and we brought a TV into his room, and we had all the games scheduled that his family had told us he he will not – he doesn't want to miss these games. Well, mm-hmm. the first day I went in, and – um, he hadn't. He he said he didn't watch the basketball game, and and I didn't understand why. Well, 
to make a long story short, he couldn't figure out how to turn the TV on. And, and the TV was a very simplified, easy TV. And this brings up a point. A lot of people in the early stages can really hide um, the fact that they have Alzheimer's because they can say little things. Like he used to say, if I said his wrong name, um, he'd say, oh, you can call me anything, but don't call me late for dinner. And that was one mm-hmm. of his things. But he would say something, he could actually hide that. But I didn't know that he was a lot farther along. So what we ended up doing was I made sure that the nursing staff had his schedule. Now, we we wanted to preserve his dignity and respect. He had just moved in there. And if you read in my book, we had to go through a whole process because he had moved from a farm right into a healthcare community that was locked. And he couldn't understand why he couldn't go outside. And I explained it to him many, many different ways. And finally I told him that, you know, they didn't want people coming in that didn't live there, you know, because of the way the world is now. And and finally we, we had that resolved. But we couldn't figure out why he wasn't watching it. And I'd go in every day and the the plug would be pulled out of the TV. So that's when I realized he couldn't figure out how to turn it on or off. So the nurses, I gave them a schedule of the shows. They made sure his TV was on, with on the proper station with the game, and they always made popcorn for him. And that improved the quality of life for him so much to do something that he used to do all the time, but he didn't know how to do because he couldn't. He just couldn't turn on the TV. And I'd even made a huge diagram. By then, I'd made a huge diagram of the TV with the on switch, and just uh, he he just he couldn't figure it out. But once once we figured out that he couldn't turn the TV on, his life became more normal, and it was just wonderful. So it's you know it makes me happy to know that you have made these connections with your mother because some people go through the whole Alzheimer's disease stage process because it's not just a disease, it's a process. They go through that whole process never making a connection and I want them to make that connection because it they I don't to me it gives them a sense of joy. I mean if if they're a loved one to know that you've connected with someone and changed their life and improved it and, and it shows you that they're still there. They they might not be able to to verbally communicate or they might not know you but they're still there. They're still inside. And you're see you get me going on some of these topics. Um you brought up something that reminded me of a lady. I used to say every day I'm going to the post office. If anybody wants to write a letter, I'll mail it for you. This woman never spoke. She was nonverbal. I I didn't think she ever heard anything that I said, but I always had a group of people that I sat with, and I I always said this to them. Every day, and I get goosebumps talking about this, every day this woman sat and wrote a letter to her husband, who was in the Army, and they were all dated in the 50s, the 1950s. And when I gave those letters to her daughters, they were surprised, number one, that she could even write. Because, number one, she, her hand shook. And, and her sentences were, she wrote each sentence twice, and it was shaky, but you could read it. Actually, 
her writing was probably better than mine. But when I gave those letters to their daughters, they were just so overwhelmed because they knew that their mother was in there. And it was actually historically accurate. Uh, the daughters confirmed that what was going on in the 50s is what was going on in their lives right then. And so that was just another really powerful experience that I had. Um, but that got off of music. But music, I can't say enough about music, and it, and it sounds like you're very well versed on it. And for me to find the connection sometimes, you can do it as simple as how Naomi filed it. I think she was just singing a cappella, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, and she made that connection, or she was singing something like that. Or with a group of people... I try to go back to the time when they were listening to the music to start. That's my starting place. Now, if people, and, and I guess a really important thing, and I'm a musician, so I'm sort of um, analytical on certain things, but I really believe that you need to have, when you're trying to make that connection, you really need to have the original artist doing it and the original arrangement. Because once again, we're trying to tap back into their memory. They might not, they might not know the arrangement that was just made in 2010 that doesn't even sound like the song. So just because it's a song, I, I really feel that it needs to be the original artist and the original performance. So that's that's okay. all I have. I have a lot more to add, um, actually, about music therapy, but I have one more topic to discuss. Yep, let's so keep better... going. Okay. Activities. And all of these tie in together because we really want the people that have Alzheimer's to have meaning in their life. So I'm going to sort of speed up a little. Activities, just like music, should always be age and stage appropriate. They should be designed to help people express themselves as they know themselves and should accommodate for disabilities and promote abilities. So first off, we're going to talk about they need to be meaningful and appropriate. Meaningful activities reflect the patient's interest, lifestyle, and are enjoyable. So once again, we're going back to the history, the social history, where what was meaningful to them? What did they do? Um, it's important that they help the person feel useful and provide a sense of belonging. And that's very important for them to be meaningful. Now, appropriate activities need to be meaningful to the patient and also respect their age, beliefs, culture, values, and life experiences. So you don't want someone uh, making Christmas ornaments that's Jewish or atheist. That's not appropriate. I just threw that one out there. I just... You, you need to make sure everything's appropriate because you might get a behavior or a communication. Why are they making me do this when I don't believe this way? Or you just you you just need to make sure that you're going back to their social history. Now, activities can be anything that's meaningful and appropriate. And as always, what's appropriate for one person may not be appropriate for another person. So the the history is what is really important, and I, I just can't emphasize that enough. Now, activities with Alzheimer's patients really are the experiences that they have during the day. So 
eating, brushing teeth, using the restroom, meals, anything that's done during the day is considered an activity. But you need to act add activities that preserve dignity and respect and provide a normalizing effect and at the same time improve their quality of life and are just plain fun. Now, I need to throw in, I like to use therapeutic communication a lot. I have done some really goofy things. I've gotten a lot of laughs in healthcare facilities. Um, I just, I've done a lot of goofy things. When um, activity is very important, but um, activity and exercise is extremely important. I should rephrase that. A lot of people, if you say, let's go exercise, they're not going to go exercise. I don't want to exercise. So I always say, let's go have some fun. I put some music on from their era, and I will have a ball or something. Usually I use a balloon, but um, I'll just, you know, throw it to them and see if they throw it back. If they throw it back, we start throwing the ball around. There's there's so many different ways that you can connect and get them to just move around a little. And I'm talking about people that are not ambulatory. I'm talking about people that just sit. And then I try to get them to do all kinds of stuff. But I do it in a joyful, happy way, and I never, ever force anyone to participate in anything that they do not want to participate in. And uh, there's one more thing. Using the restroom is also... should. I, I like a structured activity schedule. Sometimes it's very difficult, and I sort of laugh because it can be as structured as you make it, but you know you're going to have some challenges during the day. So you might be thrown off that structure, but it's okay. But I I recommend with people um, who, if they aren't incontinent, I I really strongly recommend that you invite them in an appropriate way to use the bathroom, usually every two hours. And this is really just to avoid any accidents. And you really need to do it in the proper way, like let's go freshen up, or I'm I'm going to use the restroom, would you like to go with me? Or I always put everything on myself. Um, mm-hmm. I had a lady that I was speaking with once, and I didn't know that her dog was sitting next to me because in her mind her dog was sitting next to me, and her dog was named Peppy. And I didn't want to stop or step on the dog. I didn't know what was going on. You know, she said the Peppy was sitting next to me, so okay. So I said, you know, I'm not very good with species of dogs. Can you tell me what kind of dog um, Peppy is? And she went through her whole story about how her parents raised poodles, and that Peppy was one from the litter. And it was really amazing because I know what she was telling me was true back in the day, but it wasn't true then because she was living, you know, in a previous time. So with activities, you really want to be, to be successful, you need to find something that the, the patient currently enjoys or used to enjoy. And I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, a lot of times... I found this out at one facility where some of the patients had become institutionalized, and I didn't really know what that meant or understood, but they wouldn't go outside. They hadn't been outside for years, and they were scared. They weren't going to go outside the door uh, to the outdoors, so they weren't going to go outside the hallway, even though it was like they didn't want to. They were scared. And 
after a week or so about talking about what kind of flowers they used to grow or vegetables they used to grow, I finally got them to go outside, but I would never force them because they were scared. But when they came to me and said, well, yeah, I'd like to go look out the flowers, we'll go out there and have some iced tea and some snacks. Um, it's just really important to find something that's meaningful and and to just keep working on it, but not in a forceful way. And there's there's... I like to use normalizing activities because they give a person a sense of belonging. And there are so many normalizing activities that I won't list them all, but folding laundry, um, baking, if, if even if you have a patient sitting in a room and you're, and you're talking with them while you're baking, that makes them feel normal. I mean, that's what they used to do if they used to bake. Reminiscing is another um, normalizing activity. I want to break in for just a second on, on the baking and the laundry because I think the other thing that people forget about is when you're doing activities to really be conscious of all our senses. So baking is not just the physical activity, but it can be the aroma, it can be the texture exactly. if they're touching the dough. Mm-hmm. Um, doing laundry can be touching the fabric. It can be the smell mm-hmm. of the detergent. All of those things um, are attached to memories um, in our bodies and so and in our minds and in our souls. And so we, we have to be conscious of, of all those little things because it's much more, you know, engaging somebody is much more than just a physical task. And sometimes... We get so caught up with the physical task and it being right or wrong, and we have to learn to embrace the task with all our senses because they do. Exactly, and that's how I I always try to incorporate the five senses when I'm trying to make a connection. Um, I mean, that's extremely important, and and I'm glad that you brought that up. But, you know, some people, normalizing to them is to cut coupons, or mm-hmm. taking a walk, or gardening. You can have them help you water, or they maybe watched I Love Lucy when they were growing up. Um, but I, I always try to make a connection with the five senses, which are taste, smell, touch, vision, and hearing. And a connection is made when you least expect it sometimes. But um, that's the truth. I have it. it is, well, it really is because you might try all day and then. Two hours later, you get the expected outcome, and, and, and you still get it, so you're still happy, but it's like, well, I spent three hours trying, but it gets easier, because once you yep. can make that connection, it becomes easier, it becomes faster, so you don't have to worry about that patient having that communication or behavior, because you know how to resolve it before it even starts. So I'm going to have to start talking really fast now. Um <laughs> I think one of the saddest things that I've witnessed in in um healthcare communities is over medication on antipsychotics and this has become a really big problem and I just want to read a quote from Daniel R Levison um he's the Inspector General Department of Health and Human Services to the United States Senate Special Committee on Aging and he uh, the the full thing can be read. His full testimony can be read on the internet. It was November thirtieth, twenty 
2011. It was just recently. So I just want to read one comment, which really, really saddens me because it just saddens me because I want people to have the best quality of life that they can possibly have. So his quote is, or his part of his testimony is, it is no secret to professionals in the Alzheimer's community that a large fraction of nursing home residents living with dementia are being over-medicated with antipsychotic drugs to keep them, in parentheses, under control. This happens in the name of profit. It is more convenient and less expensive to medicate than it is to hire additional staff or to better train staff. Non-pharmacological intervention and care is simply more expensive. And I read the full report, and it just saddened me because there's all there's many things that contribute to the over-medication, but we could really eliminate this problem by using therapeutic communication and validation therapy. I mean, it, it could be eliminated, eliminated, listen to me, eliminated. Um, and um, I have a poem that I would like to read, and I do not know the author of the poem, but it's very touching, and I believe it, it ties in everything that I've talked about. I do not know who wrote this, uh, but it's a beautiful poem, and it really touches, I think it touches the heart of anybody that works with people that have dementia or Alzheimer's. So the name of it, it's called Maybe. When I wander, don't tell me to come and sit down. Wander with me. It may be because I am hungry, thirsty, need the toilet, or maybe I just need to stretch my legs. When I call for my mother, even though I'm 90, don't tell me she has died. Reassure me, cuddle me, ask me about her. It may be that I am looking for the security that my mother once gave. When I shout out, please don't ask me to be quiet or just walk by. I am trying to tell you something, but have difficulty in telling you what. Be patient. Try to find out. I may be in pain. When I become agitated or appear angry, please don't reach for the drugs first. I am trying to tell you something. It may be too hot, too bright, or too noisy. Or maybe it's because I am missing my loved ones. Try to find out first. When I don't eat my dinner or drink my tea, it may be because I've forgotten how to. Show me what to do. Remind me. It may be that I just need to hold my knife and fork. I may know what to do then. When I push you away when you're trying to help me, a wash perhaps, or getting dressed, maybe it's because I have forgotten what you have said. Keep telling me what you're doing over and over. With all my thoughts and maybes, perhaps it will be you who reaches my thoughts, understands my fears, and will make me feel safe. Maybe it will be you that I need to thank, if only I knew how. And I think that poem is, is just says it all. I, I think it's beautiful. I, I think that there's something on YouTube that's somewhat similar to that, um, a video, um, and it's got an older woman, and the nurse is tending to her and her thoughts. You're hearing her thoughts, though she can't communicate. 
And wow. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty powerful, too. I'll see if I can find that, and if I can, I'll post that on the site as well. That's wonderful. Um, yeah. I wondered if somebody, I didn't know if someone with Alzheimer's or dementia had written it or if, if you know, I just I would love to know who wrote it, and I'd love to see the video because that really touched me. And mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times if we can just try and get into the mind or the life of the person that has Alzheimer's disease, we'll understand that they're trying to communicate with us. They are communicating with us, but we just we have to learn the means to understand their communication. And I I really feel that validation. Therapy is an amazing way to to resolve behaviors and to to know how to redirect them before they happen. I've had so many people that I've I've known when I've gone to work that this person's going to ask this or do this, and I can I already know in my mind that I can I can worry about other other areas of my employment because I can resolve those as soon as they ask the question. And you can't do this in a condescending manner. You have to be very serious because they'll pick up Mm -hmm. on it. You can't, you have to take it very seriously. You can't, you can't talk to them like they're a child. You can't be condescending. You have to be very serious. Um, I had to get a dog out of a room once, a patient, thought that there was a dog in the room and she was scared to death. And the first thing I did was is I removed her from the room and I closed the door. And um, by the way, there wasn't a dog in the room. But she thought there was a dog in the room. And that's all that mattered. So I closed the door. I lifted her sheets up so she could see that I had checked underneath the bed. Um, I had all of her, her, her bathroom door open, her closet doors open, and a window open. And I waited a few minutes, and I went back. Because she was petrified. She thought the dog was going to bite her. And I said, we got the dog out of the room. And she said, are you sure you did? Are, are you, you're positive? And I said, she said, how did you do that? And we slowly walked in the room, and I said, the window's open. We got the dog out through the window. And I'm going to close it now because I wanted to show you that we did get the dog out. And then went I looked underneath the bed in front of her. I looked mm-hmm. in the closets. I showed her. I went through every action so she would feel safe. And in taking the time to do that, that never came up again. She never thought that there was a dog in her room. Um, but in taking the time to go into her reality instead of saying, there's not a dog in here, um, I resolved the situation which could have easily escalated because it was mm-hmm. it was pretty much time for the residents to go to bed, and she, I don't think she was going to stay in that room with the dog. And when you validate, you want to be really serious. This isn't a joking manner. I've seen a lot of staff think that it's funny, unfortunately, in some healthcare facilities, and um, it's it's really not. It's it's really improving the quality of life and preserving dignity and respect for our loved ones and and the elder population who deserve, at a minimum, to be treated in that manner. I agree. I agree. I was just out on YouTube here, and um, one of the the films that's very good that kind of goes along the lines of that poem, if I remember it correctly, I can't play it right now because I I, I don't want any background noise, but it's called... um, 
Oh, where did it go? It just flipped on me. I want to say in my bean, I think is what it's called. Inside my bean.com. And um, so if they go to YouTube and put inside my bean, and it talks about a relationship between a mother and a daughter um, from a woman who can't communicate um, as she normally did. So um, I will post that on there. Now we have, we're, we're running down to about 10 minutes left here. You have just given us a whirlwind of information. What else would you like to share with us, Michael, in the in the next five minutes or so here? I just really want people to know that this sounds like a lot of work, but it really isn't. And once once you start monitoring your behavior and using these techniques, you will never stop. I mean, I once once the first time validation worked for me. I knew I would always use validation therapy. And I just ask that your listeners please try these techniques. They might seem foreign to you. It might seem uncomfortable at the beginning. But once you make the connection, you will see how much easier it becomes. And it will not only be evident in the life of the patient, but it will be evident in your life because you will no longer be trying to figure out how to calm people down when you can use just a couple words or or music or whatever the diversity of the, the patient needs. That's That's what I would like for people to get from this is please do not be overwhelmed by this information because it's very very easy to use. And I remember the first time that I used it and I, you know, I don't like to lie. There's things called therapeutic fibs, but I don't like to lie. But when I had a woman weeping when I came back from lunch asking me if my mother dead, I wasn't going to tell her she was. So mm-hmm. I, I basically said, well, I don't know your mother. When did? Because I was coming back from lunch. I I just was mm-hmm. caught off guard. I said, I don't know your mother. When did you talk to her last? And she said, Well, I thought I just talked to her on the telephone. And I said, Well, what was she doing? And she said, Well, she was making lunch and cleaning the house. And I said, Well, then your mother's still alive. If you just talked to her, so she was fine then. And I asked her, Who told you your mother was dead? And she pointed to a staff member. And I really think that. We need to change our ways in dealing with Alzheimer's, and we are. We are by by shows through your Alzheimer Speaks radio. We are changing things slowly, and hopefully it's going to be there forever, and it'll just be the way that we treat people is by using the the validation therapy and therapeutic communication. And I do Mm -hmm. want to thank you for having me on my show, or on your show, and also, if anybody has any questions or if they want to make any comments, they can reach me. My email is walkingintheirshoes at gmail.com, and I would like to hear anybody that used the techniques and or are going to use the techniques or if they have any questions or concerns, I would really like to hear any comments or questions. Wonderful. So that, well, thank you. So much well, thank for you for having me. 
Um, you just did an excellent job. I would really encourage people who are who are interested in more information to go to walkinginthershoes.com and then um, again reach out to Michael. He's there for you, and um, you know buy his book. Uh, it's loaded with great information. And I mean, we we took two hours here today, and we've really just scratched the surface <laughs> on many right. many things here. Um, right. I have to share with you one story of uh, music therapy. My daughter is an activities um, coordinator at a, at, a, at a assisted living, <clears throat> and she's in a memory care unit. And she's so cute because she's just kind of getting into all of this stuff now, um, though her, she's only known her grandma with memory loss. And there was a woman the other day who um, really kind of keeps to herself. And she has a cat, and she's just very content to kind of stay in her own apartment and not venture out and be with her cat. And Danielle said, we got a new piano. And so she said, I knew, I had heard that she liked to play the piano when she was younger. So I told her we got a new piano, and would she break it in for us? And she said, Mom, her eyes lit up and I brought her downstairs and she left her cat in the room and she played like Danielle said her and the staff were all crying they were just amazed she just played brilliantly and so they've asked her for um, different events would she like to play the piano and she said on one condition as long as there's a piano (laughs) you know she would play the piano (laughs) Um, but she was just thrilled to death to be able to pass on her talent, and um, so it was just a beautiful, beautiful time with that. And that oh, is, yeah, my mm-hmm. I mean, that's amazing. That That is so good for her. I mean, that's really given her something to look forward to and a sense of belonging that she can play the piano for the gift, something she used to do. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it is pretty, pretty wonderful. Like that. Yeah. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show again. I encourage you all to to get a hold of Michael. Um, if you've got questions or comments, we'd love to hear from from you. And um, again, thank you so much for all the time you spent with us today. I want to thank our listeners for um, participating in the show. And you know, if you have a story that you would like to tell, please please share that with me. And um, maybe you can be our next guest. Um, if you're memory impaired, if you're a family or professional caregiver, or just an advocate, um, you know, there is nothing as just as uh, we all have to work together at this. Our next right. show actually is going to be this Friday, and it's going to be kind of a redo. I had Mark Wortman, the exec- executive director of Alzheimer's Disease International, on um, last week, and we had some difficulty with um, Skype, and so we are going to redo his show, um, his portion of his show, um, this Friday, the 23rd, at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. That's 10 Central, and that would be, um, let's see, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And then on the 27th, uh, we're going to be talking about... um, a dance movement, and um, we are also going to be talking about what is going on over in India. 
So there's some really neat things, some nice connections we're making. Um, future shows, we're going to be talking about medical concierge services, and we're also going to highlight the American Academy of Neurology is having a contest. So thank you all for joining us. Have an absolute brilliant holiday season, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.